Welcome back to season three of Defending Democracy, a weekly podcast from Democracy Docket focusing on voting rights and democracy. In August, the Fifth Circuit issued a decision striking down Mississippi's 1890 law that revoked the right to vote for people convicted of certain felonies. It's a landmark ruling that could change the lives of thousands of citizens. We're your hosts. I'm Mark Elias. And I'm Paige Moskowitz. Let's get started. Joining us today, we have Paloma Wu, the Deputy Director for Impact Litigation at the Mississippi Center for Justice, and Hannah Williams, the Director of Policy at Mississippi Vote. Welcome to Defending Democracy. Uh, Let me start by asking each of you to tell me a little bit and the listeners a little bit about yourself and your organizations. My name is Paloma Wu and at the Mississippi Center for Justice as the Deputy Director of Impact Litigation, um, we primarily file cases on behalf of people in the community or organizations in the community um, who are interested in um, challenging laws, challenging policies that they uh, believe are unconstitutional that um, should be changed in order to increase um, people's access to uh, civil liberties and, and to racial equality in Mississippi. Hannah, how about you? So Mississippi Votes is a youth civic engagement organization that is determined to cultivate a transformic um, culture of civic engagement across the state of Mississippi. We do a lot of work with college students, but we also have a um, plethora of programs that reach every Mississippian throughout the state, just letting people know about their voting rights and what's happening during election season. And we have a good time doing it. So we're going to talk about the challenges posed by felony disenfranchisement and some of the innovative solutions uh, that uh, that you all have used to tackle this problem. But Paloma, when people hear the term felony disenfranchisement, what, what does it mean? <laughs> and uh, how is it uniquely applied in Mississippi? So the laws that take people's right to vote away due to a felony conviction exist in different parts of the country for different reasons. Um, in Mississippi, there's a unique type of way that the state takes people's right to vote away due to felony conviction. Um, in Mississippi, felony disenfranchisement means that if you're convicted of one of 22 felonies, you will lose your right automatically to vote for life. So you can never have gone into prison, perhaps you were convicted of receiving stolen property, which is a crime that doesn't even require a certain state of mind. You just received it. Um, And you can have never entered prison. Maybe you did time served in jail for a little bit, and you now have your right to vote taken away for your entire life, and there's not really nothing you can do about it. There's only two ways in Mississippi to get your right to vote back. Either the governor has to give it to you, just as an act of grace, which um, happens almost never in Mississippi. Or there's um, a very, uh, again, very unique to Mississippi, unique in the entire country process called the suffrage bill process, which only process in America that requires the legislature to um, pass a bill in your individual name um, and to pass both houses of legislature by two thirds vote, um, which happens again almost never. So maybe 14 people in a four year period, I think, um, recently uh, got their right to vote back that way. Before I uh, ask Hannah about the practical effect of this, I'm curious, one thing you said is that 
the governor has this power, but it is used almost never. And I'm curious, you know, normally we think about one of the roles of executives, whether it's the president of the United States or its governors, are precisely to right wrongs like this and to take steps to ensure that people, you know, are not disenfranchised. Is there something unique about Mississippi, either in the law or the constitution or just in the culture of the state that makes it so rare? I'll give you one example um, of the political climate um, that, that I think informs why governors essentially don't use their power to give people the right to vote back after um, due to felony conviction, and they don't actually exercise it. Uh, most recently in the last legislative session, or maybe it was two legislative sessions ago, um, there was an attempt to pass a bill to clarify the law. You validly expunge a conviction for which you have served your sentence um, for a crime that did take your right to vote away under the Mississippi Constitution, then you got your right to vote back because the expungement law says it puts you in a legal position as if the crime had not occurred. And section 241 of the Mississippi Constitution, which takes your right to vote away due to criminal conviction says, if you have been convicted of one of these crimes, you're no longer eligible to vote for life. So people have generally interpreted that to mean if you get an, if you expunge a crime for which you are, are being punished, then you get your right to vote back. So there was merely a bill to clarify the law on this, this issue. Um, it passed the legislature, the governor vetoed it and said something to the extent like, we're not giving these bad, big baddies the ability to go back. I mean, these are group of crimes that takes a right to vote away includes timber larceny. So felling a tree worth $250, bouncing a check for $100. So, and, and these are mostly feed your family crimes. They're not considered the most dangerous, the most violent, the most you know uh, heinous crimes. They were essentially feed your family crimes that were made to target um, black voters um, when this uh, this provision was adopted in 1890, um, and black voters were voting at higher rates than white eligible voters in Mississippi. And they were electing a ton of um, black representatives at every level of government. And then the Constitutional Convention of 1890 was called in which they held their charge to create what was later called and exported as a Mississippi plan, which was to disenfranchise by any means possible black voters without using the word black. So that you got the poll tax, you got the understanding clause, you got a lot of other things that were then um, exported have been made unconstitutional, but felon disenfranchisement remains, and in Mississippi, it remains targeting mostly poverty-related crimes. Hannah, I had an opportunity to interview um, Erika Bennett-Scott before, uh, and we talked about how hard it is to regain voting rights in Mississippi after felony conviction. Um, Paloma just described some of it. Now, I'm curious, in your work, though, um, where you're trying to engage communities, particularly uh, Black voters, but uh, uh, more broadly, in voting, like in to participate in the process? How does this history and this sort of broad ban, how does it affect your, your work? Well, first and foremost, the Mississippi Votes is an organization that is on the ground all the time. So when we're knocking doors, um, any form of canvassing, maybe having community events, 
And we hear people or we come across people that say, oh, I can't vote because I have this conviction. And we we do the dance where we ask them, what is the conviction? And um, try to see how best we can help them. We We started realizing that a lot of people have these felony convictions in the realm of disenfranchisement that could potentially be affecting elections. So in my work, we've done a a bunch of things to try to make the process easier, as easy as it can be, because we still have to go through the legislative process for for more or less. But we host a bunch of um, expungement clinics. Uh, usually with the Mississippi Center for Justice as one of our most trusted partners. Um, So we'll host expungement clinics and we'll explain to people what that process looks like for them if their conviction is eligible for expungement. But mostly we've turned the suffrage process digital. And that's been like a really big thing for us. Um, So traditionally, you have to find your way to Jackson, pick up a piece of paper during session, if you know when session is, fill it out, find your legislator, and return it to them. What we've done is we've completely digitized the process for people to be able to apply for for, uh, suffrage. It may take like five or six people, two or three days to get through the entire list of people who have applied for through our online form. We, We still have to handwrite all of this information. Once we do that and we have everything squared away, we still have to physically walk all of these big, heavy folders full of forms to our legislature. Um, we have a few allies within the legislature, of course, that we trust with this type of work who are also committed to forming some type of solution around this type of work. So we give that to them and then we wait because we have to play the game. And how long does it does it take how long is that wait? And also, can you give me some sense of how many people are we talking about? This last year, we were able to turn in over 100 suffrage applications since we've digitized our form through us. And then also other organizations are turning in suffrage applications, um, like One Voice, NAACP, and folks who individually turn in their suffrage applications. So we try to watch all of the applications as soon as they get numbers. But realistically, the process may take about a week or a week and a half before we get our first notification of what's happening. Um, and then usually we just we have we just watch the uh, bills that get numbers. So whenever new bills are introduced on the legislative website, we're literally just watching people for a bill of suffrage so that we can track all those numbers. So I am very excited to be talking to the two of you. Um, and for those of you who are regular listeners know, uh, we often talk about innovative litigation. Um, and one of my heroes, uh, is Paloma Wu, who brought one of the most innovative and successful cases, um, that, uh, uh, that, uh, has been in the felony disenfranchisement arena. Can you tell us? a little bit about the case that you were lead counsel uh, on involving the uh, challenge to the felony disenfranchisement law and where that stands. Um, I Thank you so much. I just want to give credit where credit's due. I am I was a part of a team and part of a group. I also, um, I currently work at Mississippi Center for Justice when we brought the 
um, Hopkins litigation that you were referring to. I was at the Southern Poverty Law Center. This case was just absolutely a hive brain child. It is Simpson Thatcher, um, which was a previous law firm that I worked at before I moved to Mississippi. Um, There is um, Jonathan Young, Janet Gotchman, and Nahart Antrodri, who should be credited with this case. This was, we, we we all did this together. So just so you know, I think what everybody was struggling with in the realm of how to move the ball on um, trying to get people the right to vote who had been, um, had it taken away due to conviction, which everybody agrees, let's be clear, is based in trying to get Black people not to vote. Okay, that is what we're talking about when we hitch the right to vote unnecessarily to criminal conviction. We are trying to import you know, the racial discrimination that everybody agrees is at every stage of the criminal legal system into disproportionately taking the right to vote away from Black people. That hitching of the wagon is the first, this first crisis of truth. There should be no hitching of the wagon or the right to vote to who gets convicted for how long and of what. The second thing is there was a lot of stalling of litigation around this because there has been bad decisions at the Supreme Court that nobody felt like the Supreme Court was ready to overturn. One of the, you know, bad decisions the Supreme Court looked at lifetime felony disenfranchisement and said, this doesn't violate the Constitution. But it specifically made that decision saying that it's not, it doesn't violate the Equal Protection Clause. So what else in the Constitution might it violate? Cruel and unusual punishment is that an Eighth Amendment uh, claim that typically has been used to um, go after things like the death penalty as against children, as against um, people who have um, intellectual disability. Right. And this is a provision that guarantees people the right not to suffer cruel and unusual punishment as part of a criminal conviction. Absolutely. It's typically used relatively narrowly to talk about like a uh, physical punishment. Um, However, there was case law saying that stripping somebody of citizenship for life um, for particular crimes could violate the Eighth Amendment as cruel and unusual punishment. So I think what was different in this case is trying to bring the Eighth Amendment claim to say automatic felony disenfranchisement for all disenfranchising crimes, which only existed when we brought it in four states, Um, violates the Eighth Amendment um, guarantee against cruel and unusual punishment. The test that the Supreme Court uses to assess whether a punishment is cruel and unusual, um, test number one is, is it punishment? Other cases, um, they have not uh, had the same facts that we do in Mississippi. They have looked at felony disenfranchisement, said it's not punishment, it's just sort of civil qualification. And then you cannot apply the Eighth Amendment analysis. Mississippi has, under the Readmission Act, a very clear facts that felony disenfranchisement is punishment because in order to get back into the union after they seceded, they had to sign on to a promise that they would not take people's right to vote away except as punishment for certain common law crimes. So we got we get into the Eighth Amendment analysis under the punishment um, prong, and then we are in the Eighth Amendment analysis on is it disproportional? What is the penological interest? And um, the Fifth Circuit, we lost at the trial level in federal court in the Fifth Circuit 
you know, it, it, in an incredible opinion, um, really made clear that there is no penological purpose, um, and also that it's extraordinarily disproportionate because you know it's equivalent to civil death to take the right to vote away for life, um, and it is done in this case without regard to whether somebody bounced a check for $100 or did something more. Um, and the language it uses is very expansive, which is what we're really excited about. Um, it, it really does characterize, I mean, I could, I have a bunch of quotes, you know, from the decision, but I think just, to, you know, choose one of them, you know, the li automatic lifetime disenfranchisement for people who've served their sentences um, serves no penal legitimate penological purpose by severing former offenders from the body politic forever. Section 241 ensures that they will never be fully rehabilitated, continues to punish them beyond the term their culpability requires, and serves no protective function to society. It is thus a cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah, look, it is a wonderful opinion. The Fifth Circuit, typically a very conservative circuit. You know, I wanted to highlight it and I want everyone to to sort of appreciate this. Um both because it reaches the right conclusion. I was appalled by a earlier decision, a different case that held that somehow that this provision originated as part of an overtly and an avowedly racist provision in the Mississippi Constitution somehow through the passage of time. Uh, and some minor variations in the law that somehow that undid the racist origin of the law. I thought that was uh, an absolute uh, wrongly decided and shameful decision. But what I love about this, Paloma, and it's why I wanted to highlight this, and I know you were at a different organization and you know there are lots of lawyers who work on cases, but one of the reasons why I said you're one of my heroes is that it's very easy to travel the well-worn path and it's very easy to see that the well-worn path leads you to a dead end. You know, it's very easy for people to say, well, you know, there's opinion from 50 years ago. And so there's nothing you can do. And you have to look in the eyes of voters today. You have to look in the eyes of citizens today and tell them there's nothing we can do. And sometimes that is the answer. There is nothing you can do. But it takes a real hero in the voting rights movement to say, you know what, we're going to find a way. We're going to try to see what else there may be that we can do. And that's what I feel like you did. I understand, like I said, lots of lawyers involved, prior prior um, organization, but but that's what you did here. And, uh, and you found an application of the Eighth Amendment, which I think is genius, and uh, you wound up with a really important victory in the Fifth Circuit. So we all owe you a debt of gratitude for that. Uh, Hannah, what has this meant for people on the ground? You know, what has it meant for people on the ground that this case, that that these cases have been out there and this case, at least uh, in the Fifth Circuit, has succeeded so far? It's very hopeful. It's a very good um, outcome, to be honest. Um, the thing that we have been telling folks is to not register yet, simply because there's still a lot of things going on with this case um, at the advisement of the team that worked so hard to get this case where it is now. Um, even though that's what we want to see is people registering and turning out to the polls on election day, we don't want folks to get caught in the cycle of now we've committed, committed voter fraud because there's no um, way to mandate this thing right now. 
And so we've told people not to register yet. We've told people that we're going to continue to um, do the suffrage route, um, even though last year no no application made it out of the Senate and everything pretty much died then. We're still hopeful that we can get some people through the legislative route. We're hoping that our legislators haven't given up on the idea of the process of committing people through suffrage simply because the Fifth Circuit has has said some things that we really like in the event that this thing does get appealed um, and we have to be stopped in our tracks again. We, we still plan to put some things in the legislature that hopefully will not only clarify the suffrage process because it's a mystery all on its own, so that is what we're doing right now. And that's what we're telling folks, even though we did, you know, jump for joy, we had our moment and we celebrated because we never thought that maybe that we would hear something so progressive. Um, we're still holding out um, to see what, what is going to happen next legally so that we can still protect folks who are interested in voting. Hannah, you, you mentioned something that I, I have to ask about um, that you know, you don't want people to register and then get caught up in some voter fraud, you know, allegations later. How how much has Mississippi's history of voter suppression, the, the Constitution, the difficulty to re-enter society fully by registering to vote after serving um, a sentence, how, how, how much has this impacted your ability generally to registering people to vote and have them have confidence in the political process. I usually hear two things. I hear we need to do something to fix this because there are people that still care about their communities that want to be able to engage politically, um, which I think is still fair. I don't know what this notion is that people who have been convicted of anything don't care about what the direction of their city, state, or or the country is going in. That's absolutely crazy to me. And I've also heard people say, this will never happen for me. I will never be able to vote. I will never get my rights back. I'm not going to fight for it. You know, I feel like I'm already, they don't care about me, basically, is the other sentiment that we get from people who maybe do have convictions. And it's very disheartening and sad to hear because there are people like me and Paloma <laughs> who are out here fighting the good fight, doing what we have to do, talking to legislators, um, turning in applications any way we can get them in. And, you know, sometimes we have to go the extra mile to tell people that, you know, we know it's not perfect right now, but just because it's not perfect doesn't mean that you have to give up. If suffrage is not the perfect process for everybody, we, we try to offer expungement and all these other avenues so that people can see that they do have options um, versus I don't have any options. One of the most actually the most often heard feedback that I get after episodes like this is people want to know what can they do? You know, they feel helpless. They're not, you know, they're not lawyers like Paloma winning big, important cases. Uh, they're not, you know, running grassroots organizations. They just, they, but they care about the issue. They hear this injustice in Mississippi and they want to know what can they do. The first thing I would say is always reach out to us uh, at Mississippi Votes. We are we are happy to help anybody that wants to organize anything around any 
um, voting rights issue, definitely get in contact with us. Uh, all of our information is on our website at msvotes.org. We have a whole section dedicated to just uh, voter disenfranchisement where you can see what crimes are on this are on the 23 uh, disenfranchising list. We have the virtual application there. And also if you want to donate to us to help us continue to do the work that we're doing, we always take a little extra pocket change if you have something to spare. But definitely get out into the community, spread the word, let people know that there are people doing this work because most of our network that we find folks through are people who are already impacted. So word of mouth is a very strong thing. It's a it's a very Mississippi thing. We still use that around here to reach people. So Definitely get some people and bring them back to us, and we will do everything that we can. Great. And we will make sure to include all that information in the show notes. Paloma, how about you? What, you know, what can people do who just, you know, want to be helpful, want to spread the word, want to support your efforts? Um, what can they do to help? I'm um, sorry, I just want to say this is a marathon and not a sprint. We don't know what's going to happen with this case when it gets to the Supreme Court. And the fight is on the ground. Okay, I like my job but the courts have, we don't have them. We do not have them. So we are fighting, but we are largely defensive. We are minimally offensive. I'm speaking from the state that just lost the road case for everyone, okay? <laughs> Hannah's work on the ground, organizations that do work on the ground, my organization, I'm in the impact litigation section, my organization does work on the ground also. Invest in local organizations who, who are knocking on the doors, who are registering people to votes, who are on the whose kids are on the same soccer teams as the legislators <laughs> who you're trying to convince to vote the right way because that is how it happens and uh, on the local level um, we certainly have national partners that really help us do a lot of number crunching and stuff that they have um, resources that we don't um, but i would say everybody's in the fight together every single person you have the right to abortion you are in the fight with the people that don't you have the right to vote you are in the fight with the people that don't so don't be discouraged it's just a matter of figuring out how um if you're local like we do expungement clinics hannah does expungement clinics like we can try to do that and if you're not local 20 bucks a month to like mississippi votes where hannah works will go directly i promise you to knocking on doors and getting people registered to vote that can vote. Um, and certainly both of us do policy work at Mississippi Center for Justice. So that's all I have to say is don't feel like you're far away. This is our fight. So before the 1890 Constitutional Convention, 67% of voting age Black people in Mississippi were registered to vote. After the 1890 Constitution, it dropped to 6%. We have never gotten back. So it's on all of us to get back to where we were in my opinion. Well, thank you both uh, for the work you do. Thank you for the inspiration you are to so many people. Um, as you say, the it is all of our fight, um, the fight for a more fuller, more inclusive democracy uh, is all of our responsibilities. And I hope everyone uh, takes you up and uh, gives gives that 20 bucks. Like I said, we will include all the information in the show notes. Thank you, Paloma and Hannah, for joining. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Defending Democracy. You can find all of the cases and articles we mentioned today linked in the description of this episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review. 
And to find out more and stay up to date on the latest voting rights and election news, visit democracydocket.com and please subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. We'll see you next time. Today's episode was produced by Paige Moskowitz and Gabrielle Corporal. It was edited by Paige Moskowitz. Defending Democracy is a production of Democracy Docket, LLC.